Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. That's where we'll spend our time in God's Word this morning, beginning in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. You'll find that on page 868 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you're visiting with us today and do not have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take that Pew Bible as our gift to you today, that God may minister to you through it. So Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, we got a lot to do today, 24 verses, I don't know who decided that, um, but uh, I encourage you to hold on today, we may go a little faster, so that'll be exciting, um, uh, I trust. So Luke 10 verse 1, please hear now the word of God. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see 
and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the challenge that it brings to us as we consider the words of our Savior. We ask that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit even now. Open us, open our hearts and our souls, our minds, our affections, that we might rejoice in what we consider today. Learn from it. Be changed by it. That Christ might receive glory through us, we pray in his name. Amen. In 1857, the United States stock market experienced a great panic. All the easy money that was made on speculation crashed. Banks failed. Life savings vanished. Factories shut down. Railroads went bankrupt. Unemployment was rampant. The recession that began in the United States spread to Europe and South America and even to the Far East as hunger and despair and uncertainty struck America in the year 1857. At that time, a quiet businessman in New York by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere saw the great need of those around him. He was burdened by that need, and he decided to do something about it. In fact, he decided to invite people to join with him for a noontime prayer meeting. Lamphere went around and put flyers all over New York City. The flyers read, How often shall I pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart. As often as I see my need of help. As often as I feel the power of temptation. As often as I feel the aggression of a worldly spirit. In prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity and intercourse with God. A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock in the rear of the North Dutch Church, corner of Fulton and William Street. This meeting is intended to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and to call upon God amidst the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. It will continue for one hour, but is also designed for those who may find it inconvenient to remain more than five or ten minutes. On September 23rd in 1857, the door was unlocked and open, and Lanfear took his seat to await the response. Five minutes passed, and no one appeared. He began to pace the room, somewhat of a conflict of both faith and fear. Ten minutes passed, and still no one came. Fifteen minutes passed, Lanfear was yet alone. Twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes, until 12.30 a step was heard upon the stairs. The first person appeared. And then another... And then another, and then another, until finally around 1240, there were six people and the prayer meeting began. The following Wednesday, there were 40. The week after that, they decided to hold the prayer meeting not every Wednesday, but every day of the week. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen in New York City were praying every day from 12 to 1. Within two years of what is now known as the New York City Revival, One million people came to Christ in New York City alone. What's extraordinary about this work of God was that there was no fanaticism. There was no hysteria. 
simply an incredible movement of the people of God to pray for God to work. You see, Lamphere understood what Jesus clearly taught, that there is a connection between prayer and the advancement of the kingdom of God. There's a connection between calling out to God and God spreading his fame and bringing in the lost. A connection that Jesus explains among many other truths here in Luke chapter 10. Now I told you last week in our study of Luke's gospel, we've come to the point in Luke's gospel, we are in the travel narratives, really from Luke 10 all the way through Luke 18. The first nine chapters of Luke's gospel ask the question, who is Jesus? Once that is now firmly established according to Luke 9, we begin to ask a different question. What shall I do? That is, what is a disciple? If Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, how do I follow Him? Last week we saw that a disciple is totally devoted to Christ. Today we see a disciple is sent by Christ. A disciple is a messenger. So please understand right from the beginning, church, if you are a Christian today... Every single one of you has been given a message to proclaim and to urge people to accept. We see that here in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and the place where he himself was about to go. He sent them. The Latin word for sent is missio, or where we get the word mission. He sent these individuals out. He put them on mission, and specifically he sent them to where he was about to go. We know that Christ was on his way to Jerusalem. It would take him a number of months to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem as he meandered through the the country of Israel, going to city after city to preach to them and to to work uh, his mighty works among them, but he, he, he takes these 72 and he divides them up by two and he sends them off ahead. He says, okay, you guys, you, you go to these three cities and you guys, you need to go to, to that town. And he sends them off on mission. Now, in case you're tempted to think, well, good for them. You know, I'm glad they had a mission. I'm not sure you're off the hook. You notice he says he appointed 72 others. That is 72 people other than the apostles. Remember, he already sent the apostles. Look back in Luke 9. Very similar passage, Luke 9 and verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Right? So he, he took the twelve apostles, which represent this, this new, new Israel, right? This new people of God. And he sent them out. But now he takes these 72, right? No named people, just people following Christ, not the apostles. No, we don't have a, a name of a single one. We don't know who they are. They're people just like you and I. And he says, you too have a mission. You too need to go out. In fact, the number 72 kind of jumps out to us, doesn't it? I mean, why, why 72? Well, we, we may not know the answer to this, at least right off the bat, but the Jews would. You see, in Genesis chapter 10 lists the descendants of the three sons of Noah. It's a very famous passage in the book of Genesis. It's called the Table of Nations. And it goes out and lists all the nations that came from the three sons of Noah. Do you know how many nations are listed in Genesis 10? 72. So the Jewish mind, there are 72 nations, 72 peoples. And so what does Jesus do but gather 72 individuals as a way to communicate he is, this gospel is for the nations. 
It's going to the nations. And when you get to Luke volume two, if you will, the book of Acts, you will see the gospel going to the nations. In fact, Luke, the only Gentile author of scripture that we are aware of writing to a Gentile man is the only one who includes this story of these 72 going out on mission to represent Christ's desire for the nations. And he continues to send people. He sends them across the ocean to places like Ghana. And he sends them across his country, as he will in a couple months, to places like Eagle Butte. And he sends us across the office to a coworker, and across the, the classroom to a schoolmate and across the hall to a brother or a daughter or a father. He continues to send us. Please understand, if you are a Christian, you have been sent by God to love and to serve and to share the message in which he has given you. Every single one of you has been sent. But you better not go unless you pray first. Jesus tells us how it is we are to go, and he begins by saying, those who are sent must pray first. Note verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. So Christ begins this sending work by saying there's a massive harvest out there. You're going out. I want you to have hope that there are many people who will respond to the offer of the kingdom of God. The harvest is massive. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Once again, the church abounds. Even God speaks to Paul when he's in Corinth. And he says, do not be afraid, for I have many in this city who are my people. What God is saying is there are many people who are not saved, but will be because they belong to me. The the harvest is massive. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe the harvest is plentiful? Right? We need to see the harvest like Christ does. Right? I think our vision so often is too small and our expectations are too low and our urgency is too tepid. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of this harvesting work. I want to be used by God to see the lost saved and generations altered and families reconciled and, and God's kingdom abound. The harvest, according to our Lord, is plentiful. And he says, I want you to understand that. I want you to be part of this harvest, but there's a problem. Read on in verse 2. But the laborers are few, right? The harvest outnumbers the laborers. So what's the solution? Reading on, he says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Therefore, pray. Right? There's the problem. The harvest is too big for the, for the laborers who are out there. Therefore, you need to pray. And how, do, how should we pray? You see that? Pray earnestly. I think what Christ is saying, we need to feel this deeply. We need to recognize that the size of the task is just too great. And our resources are too limited. And that we might think there's no way that we can do this. God, help us. We have to become desperate for Him. We have to become earnest in our prayers that we might call out to Him. He wants us to feel this in our heart. In, in fact, I, I think Jesus very clearly is, is binding missionary success to the faithfulness of prayer. You see that? You have to pray, he says. Before he sends them out, he says you have to start with prayer. You have to continue with prayer. Don't even think about doing this with, with prayer. I'm sending you out. But right, right before they go, the very first instruction, he says you have to pray. You have to pray earnestly. And notice to whom we should pray. The Lord of the harvest, he says. Which I think is interesting. It's kind of strange. Why would the workers tell the boss, the Lord, right, what he needs? Right? He, it's his harvest. 
He clearly knows the shortage of workers, right? He knows the massiveness of the harvest. Why would Jesus tell the workers to tell the Lord to come bring more workers? Now, there may be many answers to that question, but let me try to give you one. I would suggest to you that the Lord loves to bless, the Lord loves to save, but the Lord loves to do it in answer to prayer. God likes to act in response to earnest prayer. As has been said anonymously some centuries ago, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. And I don't understand that, to be perfectly honest. I struggle with the, the relationship between divine omnipotence and human prayer. Please don't think that we manipulate God. Please don't think that, 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 that God's will will not be accomplished if we sit on our hands. He's going to do what He intends to do. And yet He wants to do it in response to our prayers. We're to pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's what Scripture teaches us. It's what history shows us. That God, before He does a great work, always pours out a spirit of prayer upon a people to begin to plead for that work. And I I think a sign, if God is going to use Hamilton Baptist Church in a massive and glorious way, He will first move us in prayer. That will be a sign that God is about to work, is, is that you and I and this church becomes burdened to call out to God with increasing earnestness and, and sacrifice and diligence. It's one of the reasons why on April 10th we are going to set aside 15 days of prayer for this church. There are going to be fasts that we are calling for, special opportunities of prayer for you to be part of praying both privately and corporately throughout those 15 days, pleading for God to do a work in us and through us. And I just wonder, I've been, I've been praying about this. I, just, I, I, I wonder, what, what, if we, what if he did this in us? What if, what if we caught this? I mean, what if it's this simple? Begin to pray with all you got. And he began to do work like that here in Hamilton Baptist Church. What if, it, what if that's just the first domino for God to begin to bring a massive harvest in? May God do that work in your heart and in our heart. May we pray earnestly for the slums in Ghana and and for the well-beings of our families and the the Indians on Eagle Butte and our spiritual growth. May God work in us this way. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for what? Well, he tells us more laborers, doesn't he? Pray that he would send out more witnesses. By the way, there are many other places in the Scripture where God links prayer and missions. I, in fact, when I first wrote this sermon, I had like 30 minutes on this subpoint. But well, we're at verse two already, so we need to pick up pace. So. But let me. But we're to pray quickly. I, I have these on the screen. Pray to embolden witnesses to give us boldness. Pray to open doors for witnesses. Right? The Bible tells us to pray that doors will be open. Are there people who say, "I don't want to talk about it"? Stop talking to me about Jesus. It's one thing to recognize a closed door. It's another thing to be satisfied with it. Pray that that door may be opened. Pray that God would give clarity to the witnesses, that you might have the words to say. Pray that God would protect the witnesses. Right? Pray for these things, especially in light of the hardship that will come amongst the witnesses. Why don't you leave those up for a second, but we're going to move on to point number two. Expect hardship. Expect hardship. The mission, the the messenger should expect hardship. Look in verse 3. Go your way. 
Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, this, this may be why there are so few laborers. Because it's just not a harvest field. It's just not harvesters in a field. It's sheep among wolves. Right? Jesus here switches metaphors. He says, by the way, you guys, you need to understand, as you go, you're like, not even sheep, right? You are like lambs. And I'm sending you to wolves. Which is not very encouraging. Right? I mean, that's not really what you want to hear. I don't know a lot of stories of the sheep beating up on the wolves. Right? It seems to go the, the opposite way. In fact, when we lived down south, we had 15 acres. We had a little hobby farm. We, we at one time had uh, sheep. We had, I, I'm, a, I'm a shepherd professionally. I wanted to try it uh, as a hobby as well. And so we, we had sheep and, and uh, we had four sheep. I'm a much better pastor than I am a shepherd, by the way. Um, we had four sheep. We also had dogs. And we went away one day and came back and we didn't have four sheep anymore. Uh, four sheep. We had w- one sheep, right? We, we called her Uno, right? Um, and, right? Th- these are, and these are big, these are big girls. They're 150 pound sheep. These are not small animals. These are big animals. And these are dogs. And so dogs versus sheep, not even close. What about, what about lambs versus wolves? Right? I'm sending you out like plump, defenseless meals on legs, wandering through carnivorous, drooling wolves. And, and they've got to be looking at each other at this point thinking, well, I'm not sure I want to do this. Right? this. This doesn't sound like a good idea. In fact, you notice, if you know anything about church history or if you read your Bible, this is exactly what happens. The wolves attack. And these, those who go out, according to Scripture, are betrayed, they're arrested, they're beaten, killed, many of them. Christ, full disclosure, once again, you need to understand what you're signing up for if you're following after me. I demand everything from you, and you are going to be persecuted if you go out as with my message, just like Jesus, who was what? A lamb led to the slaughter. You want to follow me? Well, this is where I'm going. This is the life I'm going to live. And it is happening not only in Scripture, it's happening throughout this world today, as you know. Take Nigeria, for example, where 4,000 Christians were killed last year because they love Jesus. 200 church buildings were destroyed in Nigeria, an increase of persecution by 63% in that country, and we could go on and on and on. There are wolves out there, and they are slaughtering God's lambs. And by the way, there are wolves here in this country. Our church building may not be burned down anytime soon. I hope not. But there are other kinds of wolves. There are doctrinal wolves who get you to doubt Scripture, people who put seeds in your heart that Scripture is not true. There are moral wolves that get you to compromise your, your, your purity, your holiness. There are divisive wolves who attempt to breed disunity within the church. There are wolves here in this country. So what then should we do? Well, I'll tell you what not to do is not to become like them. You don't, you don't let them turn you into what they are like. Instead, you do what sheep do among wolves. What do sheep do among wolves? They trust their shepherd. That's it. That's the only thing you got. Trust your shepherd. In fact, does that know what Christ is getting at in verse 4? Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. You have no resources. Travel light. And it may be because they have to run from wolves. I'm not sure. But he says, go with nothing. Go without defense as you are spectacularly dependent upon God in the midst of this. Recently, a a group of Christians tried this in China. In 1994, 
I don't know if you know what's going on in China, but 60 years ago, there was about 1 million Christians in China. Today, China is the most Christian nation in the world. There are more Christians in China than any other nation in the world. And within the last 60 years, the church has gone from 1 million to somewhere between 80 and 120 million Christians in China. It's hard to keep track because that most of them have to worship in secret in house churches. But one of the largest house church networks in China, China Gospel Fellowship, in 1994, inspired by Luke chapter 10, began to collect for a special offering to send out missionaries. And, and these are poor people. They're not like you and I. And they sold their chickens and their, and their, their animals. And, and with their stories of people giving up the money that they've been saving for their wedding in order to send out missionaries. And they gathered together in this great commissioning service, right? And, and they, you know how many people they commissioned? 72 to go two by two to preach the gospel in the far provinces of China. Most of these missionaries were, were young and single, some even in their teens. And you know how much money they gave them? Just enough for a one-way ticket. Right? They gave them train fare for a one-way ticket with no money once you get off that train. Right? So you go knowing no one, get into that station, you walk out with no resources whatsoever except one, God himself. You trust the Lord in the midst of hardship. It's lambs against wolves. And there's no doubt wolves have victories, don't they? But let's be clear. The lambs are winning. The church is growing. In fact, the church in the 20th century grew faster than any other century since the church existed except for the first century. The church is, God, God keeps taking wolves and sheepizing them. Right? He grabs these wolves and turns them into sheep. That's the power of God that we have with us. So the wolves better watch out. The lambs are coming in the power of God. Expect hardship. If you're God's messenger, number three, proclaim salvation. Consider verse four once again. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Right? Go empty-handed, he says. Don't bring money. Just go in that town. Expect the Holy Spirit to be working ahead of you. Right? I think part of this, I wonder if what Christ is doing in this urgent mission... Right? If you show up and you say, I'm, I'm here representing the Messiah, and you have no money... Right? They have to decide right there and then. Right? If you don't have money to go find a place to stay that night or food to buy, they either have to decide, am I going to accept this individual or am I going to reject this individual? Forces that decision upon them when you show up in their town with no resources. In fact, Christ says, don't even take time for idle chit-chat. You see that in verse 4? Greet no one on the road. Don't get distracted. Let's go. It's urgent, Christ says. Now, now this is a short-term mission. Sometimes missions is long-term. Sometimes you spend decades, your whole life, building relationships. But in this case, and I think in times in our lives, Jesus is telling them, listen, you don't, you don't get distracted. You walk up to someone and say, hi, my name's Stephen. I, can I tell you about Jesus? No? Okay, I'm going to go talk to this guy then. And on you go. This is how Jesus is sending them. And I think what he's telling them to do is harvest the low-hanging fruit first. Right? There are some people close to Jesus. And some people far from Jesus. Some people are ripe. Some people are green. And he's saying, go for the ripe fruit first. I wonder if there's anybody in your life that is, is ripening, if you will. Anybody in your life that's asking questions? Any of your, anybody in your life inquiring? Anybody in your life, if you said to, hey, would you like to come to church with me? They would say, yeah. Anybody in your life who maybe been asking questions about Scripture, that you would go out and you buy them a nice Bible. Maybe write their name in it. 
And you go to say, and say, listen, I don't, I don't want to be pushy, but I know you've been asking questions about, about God, and, and I got you this Bible. In fact, I'm reading the Gospel of Luke. Would, you want to read it together maybe once a week, uh, lunch hour, or something like that? Anybody in your life that, that you would, there was a chance, they would say, yeah, I would like to go to church with you. You know how I became a Christian? I, I was a 17-year-old, both feet fully in sin, and some kid said, do you want to go to church with me? That's it. He wasn't even a believer. And he's a, he was a better witness than a lot of believers. You want to come to church. You know, my wife came to Christ. I said, Lego, would you like to go to church with me? Right? You know, my parents came to Christ. Mom, do you want to come to church with me? Dad, do you want to come to church with me? Right? Is anybody in your life, any low-hanging fruit, that for some reason you're just being quiet? You're a messenger. Go, Christ says. And when you go, look what he says. He says, uh, proclaim salvation. Verse 5, whatever house you enter first, say peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace rests upon him. But if not, let it return to you. Right? What are you, what are you bringing? He says, you bring peace with you. Peace with God. Please understand, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you're here with us. You are always welcome here. But understand that we as Christians believe that every single person in this world is at, is, is at hostility with God. The Bible says that every single person by their very nature is God's enemy. Despite what our culture tells you, this is what Scripture teaches us. We choose to believe that. That we are His enemies. All of us. And yet God has made a way to bring peace to us. He has made a way to bring peace between you and Him by sending His Son into this world that He might go to, to a cross and there die upon the cross, not, not just to die, but on that cross He took all of your sin. We sang about it uh, uh, this morning that our debt was paid. He was punished in our place and three days later He rose victoriously, bodily, historically from the dead to prove that it was true. And now He offers you peace. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand something, that God is holding out His peace with His hands of grace and mercy right in front of you right now. And all you have to do is reach out and take it. That's it. You don't have to earn it. You just have to reach out and say, I give my life to Christ. I receive the peace that He offers me. I receive the forgiveness. I believe He is the Son of God. I believe He rose from the dead. And I today surrender everything. You say that. You don't listen to another word I preach today. You just deal with God in your heart right now, saying, God, I believe... I want that peace. Some people are going to receive it. You see that verse 6, the son of peace? There are sons of peace out there. They're going to welcome the gospel. He says, as you and I go, we go to work, we go to the baseball field, we go to the neighborhood, we go home. We've got to seek to bring peace wherever we go. Christ goes on, verse 7, and he says, and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. You see, he's giving them instruction. Once you find a place that receives Jesus, you stay there. Right? Someone says, hey, my home now belongs to Jesus. That's where you stay. That's where you open the Bible around their dinner table. That's where you pray. That's where you receive other people. And he goes on and, and, and he says there, there in verse 7, a laborer deserves his wages. Right? This is quoted elsewhere in Scripture to say that you ought to pay your pastors. Now, I know there's some self-interest for me to pause here for a moment. But please understand that the Bible teaches us if you want someone to give you messages week in and week out, expounding and applying the Word of God, that you are to pay them. And we are, well, I will speak for myself and Josh. Can I speak for you, brother? We are so delightfully and, and uh, wonderfully thankful for your gifts to us that you would, you would entrust us with this responsibility and pay us to do it. 
thank you very much for that work. But I'm, I'm happy that Daryl's here this morning to remind us that you don't only pay me or Josh to teach your word. You understand you're, you're, you're paying all sorts of people to teach God's word. People that will never preach a single minute to you. You know, last year you gave $12,000 to train seminarians who will never stand in this pulpit, never preach to you so other people can have faithful preachers. You know, you also last year gave $12,000 to the North American Mission Board just from our budget in addition to the over $10,000 you gave to Annie Armstrong Easter offering to plant churches around this country that you will never specifically benefit from, but others can hear the gospel. You know, you've given $5,000 so there could be a church planted in Enswam, Ghana, a place that most of you will never go. Last year, you gave $6,000 to Kevin McKay to preach the gospel in Grace Harbor, Rhode Island. Do you understand you gave $5,000 last year to Jeff? Hemby to travel this country that he might proclaim Christ. These are preachers that will never benefit you at all. And you have given sacrificially. Praise God for what he is doing through this church. May God continue to bless us by using us in this way. Praise God for that. Verse 9. Heal the sick. And in it, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So as you're, you're proclaiming salvation, he says, don't only just proclaim, help people. Turn that house into an outpost of the kingdom of God. You and I are not simply to, to, to uh, address people's spiritual needs. We are to address people's physical needs. You see that? Verse 9, heal the sick and talk about the kingdom of God. Right? So we are not just messengers. As we'll see next week, a disciple is a neighbor. A disciple is sent by God to love people whether they believe what we believe or not. Number four, as God's messengers, we should warn of judgment. Warn of judgment. Verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So he says, if you go to a town and they don't receive you, you need to give them a very public warning. You, you go to the city square, or the streets, or the marketplace, you take off your sandals and you beat them together. That the dust may come off, declaring that, that, that this dust, you're, you're unclean. You, the judgment of God will come upon you unless you receive the message in which I'm bringing. You're to warn them, in other words. A kind warning, a very vivid and powerful warning. But it's kind to warn people of judgment. In fact, I think that's what Jesus does as he begins to think about judgment clearly. As we see in verse 12, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town, that town that rejects you. And by the way, it didn't go well for Sodom. Fire fell from the sky and killed every single person in that village except for four. There's a place in South Jordan, interestingly enough, scientists don't know why it's full of burnt rock and parched land. It looks like there was a volcano eruption, but there is no volcano nearby. The Bible places Sodom in that vicinity place that experienced the judgment of God, people that are infamous for sin. I mean, who's more infamous for sin than the Sodomites? What town could be worse than Sodom? I'll tell you what town. Any town that rejects a messenger in which Christ has sent. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Verse 12, I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What, what, 
the reason why is because this town has more, more truth to respond to. They have more revelation and therefore they are more accountable for that revelation, right? Sodomites, they had the, the truth on their hearts, but no one ever came in and told them about Jesus. No one ever came and told them about God and how they might respond to Him. And Jesus says, listen, when, when you, these people reject you, they are more accountable for the truth in which they receive. Look in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. Right? He says, if they hear you, they're not actually hearing you. They're hearing me. They're hearing me through you. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the sin of rejecting Jesus' messengers is worse than the sin that Sodom committed. And therefore, judgment will be worse. Scripture teaches us that people will be judged according to the truth they receive. The more truth you receive, the more accountable you are to respond to it. And let's be very clear here this morning. If you are hearing my voice, you have received more truth today than the Sodomites ever had. And if you continue to reject the truth of God according to the words of Christ, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the Sodomites than it will be for you. I tell you that with all the kindness in my heart, with a great fear for you who will turn your back and persist in your rebellion. In fact, Jesus does continue. Look in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. These three towns that Jesus listed are all in Galilee. Capernaum was his adopted hometown. Chorazin, two miles away. Bethsaida, the home of some of the apostles. All three of these towns had heard Jesus preaching. All three of these towns, according to the Lord there in verse 13, had seen his mighty works, had witnessed the Son of God in the flesh, and still they rejected him. And what Christ does is he compares these towns who had seen Christ, heard Christ, watched Christ, to these notorious Gentile towns like Sodom, and said these Gentile towns would have repented long ago if they had received the message that you have received. They would have welcomed me. They would have repented and entered the kingdom of God. And I think there's extraordinary truth taught to us in light of this passage. We see, I believe, that there is power in unbelief in our hearts. These are three towns in which Jesus did hundreds of public miracles. They had all the evidence in the world and still they would not believe in Christ. Please understand that unbelief is not caused by a lack of evidence. Unbelief, is, unbelief conquers evidence. One pastor has said, unbelief swallows the evidence and says, I'm still hungry. Give me more. Prove it to me. Show me more signs. We see this throughout Scripture. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying from, uh, from the idea that you're not allowed to ask questions. I think you're allowed to... Everyone's. You're a skeptic today. You're, you're not sure today. Don't ever let anybody say, you just have to believe and stop asking your questions. You have every right to ask for evidence. There's no doubt about that. Christ has provided that evidence. But, but let's, let's be clear. Is that if we persist in our unbelief, despite the evidence, we are just like these towns. How many people say, oh, I would believe if he just wrote his name in the sky or just performed some miracle. I would believe if someone's arm was cut off and someone came and said in the name of Jesus and he attached that arm back on, then I would believe. Well, Christ did that. 
put a man's ear back on his head. He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He cured the leper. He, he, he cast, cast away deafness over and over and over again. They still do not believe. There's something in our heart that rebels against the message of God. And if it continues, I say to you what Christ said to these towns. Woe to you. Woe to you. And by the way, that woe is not a curse. It's sadness. Christ is saying, do you realize what is coming upon you? Is anguish in Christ's heart. These are his friends. These are his neighbors. So he warns them of judgment. Number five, as Christ's messengers, we should serve with joy. So these 72 go off and do their work, do their ministry. And they return weeks later, maybe months later. You notice how they return. Verse 17, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They come back and they are elated. Incredible success. They've healed the sick. They preach the gospel. They are amazed that even demons, these tormentors, are subject to them. I mean, how incredible would that be? Can you imagine what that would be like? Right? Uh, when you could come and just liberate people in bondage just by, by, by the power which Christ has given you. I mean, that you could talk to a demon and demon, some, for some of you, no one listens to you. Right? You, you can't even get your dog to obey you. Right? Can you imagine what that would be like? A demon. Hey, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out of here. And they, they, leave, they obey. That would be incredible. Commanding demons, healing people, liberating them, delivering them, changing them, saving them. And they come running up to Christ. Overflowing with excitement. Faces glowing with delight. Full of joy. Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus responds, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, it, it kind of seems like Jesus is showing off a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Oh, you cast out a demon? That's nice. I was in heaven when the devil fell out. <laughs> but I'm not sure that's exactly what he's doing. I think what he's saying is that the power that you have over demons is a sign of a greater victory which I have already caused. Their king cannot protect him because I have already defeated him. I have kicked him out. Oh, the devil is fighting. But as one has famously said, he is fighting as one who is in retreat. The result of that, according to verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I've given you authority over these demons, and, and they cannot harm you. He says, nothing can hurt you. Remember, he just said, you're like lambs among wolves. This can't be a reference, therefore, to physical harm. What he is saying is that you are not subject to the spiritual powers, the spiritual harm in which you saw from these demons. Certainly they can tempt us, but they cannot overcome us. They cannot control us. I have given you authority over them. The same is true for you, Christian. You have this authority by Christ. I ask you, what can separate you from the love of God? Can rulers and powers and principalities? No. Nothing can because of Christ. And there is great joy in this ministry. I think there ought to be joy in ministry. I think this is what God has caused us uh, to, to gifted us to do. So many people sit around, want people to minister to them, want people to serve them, want to cater to their needs. And those people, I think, tend to be miserable. I don't, I don't know why this has happened in our home, but the kind of the verse that I've been sharing with my children most the past six months is better to give than to what? To receive. It's better to serve than be served. It's better to think of others than to think of yourself. Paradoxically, when you begin to live for the ministry of others, you yourself find your greatest blessing. You, Christian, have been made to minister, made to share this message, and there is joy in it, Christ says. So do not... Do not shrug your shoulders at this and this idea that you're a messenger. Do not shrug your shoulders at your ministry. Do not think, Sunday school teachers, I've been there. 
Oh, not another Sunday school lesson. Rejoice. You have been given the awesome privilege to teach the eternal Word of God. And there ought to be joy in your heart there. All right. Lastly, oh, was it, point 17. I, don't, I lost track. Where are point, point number I don't know. Last point. Is it six? I didn't write it down. Keep perspective. Right? Keep perspective. So they have this joy, but there's something wrong with it. I think the joy is good, but it's misplaced. I know this because Jesus tells us in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, and the first thing you're thinking, well, what's, <laughs> why can't they rejoice in that? I mean, they're people once enslaved by demons, they're now liberated, and Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. I think it's okay to rejoice in ministry. I think we should. But look very carefully what it is that they are rejoicing in. What is it that they are excited about? Do they come back to Jesus saying, Lord, so many people are freed now because of the power you gave us. Lord, families are reconciled. The lost have been saved because of the power you gave us. No, they come and say, Lord, even the demons obey us. Right? And that's what he says in verse 20. Don't rejoice that the demons obey you. Right? They come back thinking, aren't we something? And Jesus says, you ought to be careful of that pride that's in your heart. In fact, it was the same pride that was in the devil's heart when I saw him fall from heaven. And it's in your heart right now. Instead, you ought to rejoice that your name is written in heaven, that you belong to God, that He knows you. There was a day, in fact, the Bible tells me when the day was, it was before the foundation of this world, that God wrote down my name in His book of life, Stephen Carn. My name is there. Christian, your name is written in heaven. The devil fell from heaven. Your name has risen to heaven. And therefore, Jesus warns us, don't get your sense of pride in what you've accomplished. Don't get your sense of pride in your power and your gifts and your performance. In fact, what have you, what do you have that you have not received, right? You get your sense of, of, of pride. You use people to begin to stroke your ego. You get your sense of pride in the size of your paycheck or the size of your office or the size of your church and people will become trophies to you. Right? And you will begin to use people to look how great you are. And Christ says, do not rejoice in your performance. Rejoice that your names are written down by God in heaven. Rejoice that you are a citizen of the everlasting city. Rejoice that the King of heaven knows that you belong to Him. Rejoice that He saved you, that He loves you, that He forgave you, that He blesses you, He's pursuing you, He adores you. Rejoice that Jesus says to those who trust Him, I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before for my Father. Your name is on the lips of Christ Himself. Rejoice as we sing that when the roll is caught up yonder, I'll be there. Amen. There's where you're... Is that a good place to put your joy? Let you put your joy there? Is that a safe place? In fact, if you don't... If you're uncertain in this, I don't even know how you have any joy. Your joy must be completely superficial. Always wondering if you give yourself the time to think, what does eternity hold for me? 
I love the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the greatest English-speaking preacher of the 20th century, preached throughout England for 50 years, leader of the evangelical movement. His health was in decline. He was reduced to sitting in his room, not moving, uh, totally under the care, 24 hours of others. And someone asked the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, how are you dealing with this decline? And he looked at that man and he said, rejoice not that the Spirit's are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And so when our brother Daryl comes and he holds up a, 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 an award for us, we ought to be careful. Very easy to start doing this. Christian, Hamilton Baptist Church, be thankful for what God is doing through you, but rejoice in what God has done for you. Rejoice in what He is doing in you. Rejoice in the work of God. Rejoice that our names are written in heaven. How do our names get there? Verse 21, in that same hour He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced, by the way. I want you to understand, Jesus is full of joy. Jesus is happy. You may not think God is happy because you spend time with religious people. Right? You, you may say, God can't be happy. I know His people. Right? That's not true. Jesus is full of joy. He's fired up. He's excited. What's he have joy in? His circumstances? Life going well for Jesus? Where's he going? Luke 9, 51, he set his face towards Jerusalem. So what is, what is he going to do for the next three months? He's going to walk over barren terrain, homeless, not sure where he'll eat or what he'll eat or if he'll eat. He's going to be traveling with a bunch of needy people who always want stuff from him. One guy who's stealing from him. A bunch of guys that don't understand anything, it seems like. And occasionally there's going to be a religious hypocrite that tries to capture him in some theological trap or a crazy demoniac that tries to attack him. And the whole destination, he ends up pinned to a cross there, naked in front of a mocking crowd as they spit on him and throw things at him. And there he dies under the wrath of God. You think he's rejoicing in his circumstances? He's going to say, yeah, that sounds nice. You know? I would like to, I would like a pizza, please, and a full night's sleep. I don't want that. He's not rejoicing in his circumstances. What is he rejoicing in? See, Christ has this perspective that you and I need to have. Look what he says. I thank you, Father, verse 21, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Right? There's so much there we don't have time, but please understand that that Christ tells us who knows the Father. Who knows the Father, according to Christ? No one except the Son. Now, I'm glad the verse doesn't end there. Please understand, Christ says the Son alone knows the Father. That's a mind-blowing statement, right? You go on Oprah with that statement. I alone know who God is, right? You go to Pakistan with that statement. Statements like that get you killed. If you are ever tempted to think Jesus is just some religious teacher, some moral example, you read Luke 10, 22. I alone know the Father. The Son alone knows the Father, and the Son alone reveals the Father. Verse 22, uh, he says that... that he know and who who the father and the universe who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him, so he chooses to reveal the father to some. No one knows the father except to who Jesus reveals him to. Well, who does he choose then to reveal him to? 
Well, read verse 21. I think we see the answer. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, he's praying. You have hidden these truths from the wise and understanding and revealed, same word as in verse 22, them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Right? He revealed, doesn't reveal to the wise and understanding, self-sufficient, proud, I don't need Jesus. He hides the truth from them. Little children, babies, literally infants. Right? That's who he likes to reveal himself to. You know, babies uh, are in constant need of other people. Right? In fact, babies know they are in need of other people. Right? If you have, some of you have babies, some of you have babies on the way. Right? You know that babies let you know when they need you. Right? They, they are very good at telling you when they need you multiple times at night. Right? In fact, I, I, as you know, I have seven kids. My favorite word on all the earth, uh, one, top, top of my favorite words, is, is daddy. I, I love the word daddy. Dada, that's awesome. Right? I, that is a great word, except at 3 a.m. Right? I hate the word daddy. In fact, at 3 a.m., daddy sounds a lot like mommy, doesn't it? Right? Right? So, what, the, but the, the babies, they, they, they're going to let you know they need you. Right? Well, who's the babies in this story? What's the apostles? It's the 72. Jesus is full of joy saying, I thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to these babies who are boasting about their own power. Who are the children today? That's you and I, right? Do you know you need God? You think you could do this on your own? Or are you like a baby say, I need you. I need grace. I need mercy. And it's those people that he chooses to reveal himself to. And as far as I know, and as you know, he is going to choose to reveal himself to every single person that you and I might meet. That's how we get our name there. He revealed himself to us. He wrote down our name in the book of life. Please, Christian, in the midst of your life, in the midst of the work in which God calls you, keep this perspective. In fact, let's end in verse 23. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, right, he pulled them together. We just started baseball season, so I don't know why this is in my mind, but it's almost like a coach pulling his team together, not letting the other team hear, right? He pulled them in privately and said what? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you know how privileged you are, he says. Christian, do you know how privileged you are to know Christ? Keep that perspective in the midst of the life in which he calls you. You think Moses would have liked to heard the Sermon on the Mount? You, you think uh, Jeremiah would have liked to see the righteous brands from David raised? Do you, do you think Micah would have liked to see the baby born in Bethlehem or David to see the God-forsaken Savior poured out like water? you think Isaiah would have liked to seen the suffering servant wounded for our transgressions and buried in a rich man's tomb? Do you think Job would have liked to see his risen Redeemer standing upon the earth? The prophets and the kings long to know Christ like you and I do. What a blessing. In the midst of this life, as he sends us out, keep that perspective. Your name is written in the book of life. This is the perspective that this group of Chinese missionaries had as we end our time together. Those 72 missionaries, they went out. 1994, all 72 returned within six months after they had started churches in 22 of China's 30 provinces. All returned with great joy in their heart. In fact, they later gathered to hear what God had done. The leader of that uh, meeting said, quote, We had given the missionaries one-way tickets, 
We told them, you can't fail. If you are not successful in planting churches, no one will give you money to come back. When we heard their testimonies, everybody was crying. They wore out their shoes. They were rejected by people. They lived in ditches and in forests. Some of them lived with pigs. Yet, in that meeting, we heard how God had declared his love to us and to China. Seventy-two go out with nothing but the clothes on their back and the gospel in their heart, and they returned starting churches all over China. Some of those house churches, 20 years later, are now numbering in the thousands. Christ says, I'm sending you out. Go with the gospel. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this call upon our life. And if we're honest... We, at times, do not do a very good job. I, at times, do not do a very good job. Help us to open our mouths. Help us to love those you bring into our lives. Help us to do this work in which you have called us to do. And we pray for our friend here or our friends who do not know Christ. God, we long for them to know the peace that we know. We long for them to experience the forgiveness that we have experienced. Will you not, even in your kindness now, Jesus, choose to reveal yourself to them? Reveal the Father to them even now, as I pray, that they might know that their only hope is not in their good works, not in their righteousness, not in their record, but is in submitting their life to Christ in faith. Do this work even now for their eternal gain. And for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.